far as our speaker is concerned, I had never met our speaker before, and I have until last night, and I've been kind of out of the loop as I try to be out of the loop uh, now and then just to get my own duties done. And so Eric Raymond has been dialoguing back and forth with the speaker and getting everything set up. And, and so I, I went to the airport last night. I was asked to do one thing, go to the airport, pick up the speaker, 1045, and I thought I can do that. I know how to get there. I can handle that. It's a big assignment, but I know I can do it. But then I thought to myself, I don't know what he looks like. <laughs> and so last night I thought, Hi, I'm, I'm smarter than your average bear. I'll go downstairs on my computer and, and I'll uh, do a Google search and I'll do a Google search on the enemy within uh, because that will allow me at least to get the name uh, right. And I'm going to create one of these kind of signs and I'm going to stand there with a sign like I've never done before. And so I've been picked up that way, but, but I've never had to do it myself. It kind of makes you feel weird. But anyway... So I thought I got to get a spelling right. I know the conference is called The Enemy Within, and so I Googled The Enemy Within. I had my sign, and I stood at the airport, and I stood at the airport, and I stood at the airport, and no one ever came up to me and said, I'm Robert F. Kennedy. <laughs> and I didn't get it. Robert F. Kennedy wrote a book called The Enemy Within. And so I thought, well, I, I'm, I am pretty smart, so uh, I made an extra sign. And so I held up another sign, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and no one, no one named Michael Savage ever came up to me either. And so uh, I'm just being facetious. I didn't do that. I did have a sign that said Chris Lungard. But you should know there's more than one book, as we were talking about this morning, called The Enemy Within. Now, if you're here and you're expecting Michael Savage because you want to know about all the evils of the left, or if you're here expecting Robert F. Kennedy because you want to know about all the stuff that happened with the mafia, uh, which is what that was all about, um, you came to the right place. <laughs> because we have something far better for you uh, than Michael Savage uh, or Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, we are very thankful uh, that Chris Lundgaard has, has come, and he's written this book called The Enemy Within, and uh, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that he is not the enemy within. Uh, I'm sure he, he's heard all those kind of jokes before, and they're not even funny anymore. So anyway, uh, <laughs> two books he's written that we are very thankful for. This book here called Through the Looking Glass. I had the, the opportunity to read this on my summer vacation and enjoyed it very much. Uh, as much as you can enjoy a book that is convicting uh, and challenging to you, but I would commend his book uh, on reflections on Christ that change us. And then the second book, which I don't need to say very much about because it's the theme of the conference, and uh, so many of you have already read it and have appreciated it. It's kind of the buzz around here and in other places, and we're so thankful that God uh, put it upon Chris's heart to read this book and to have him come here and talk to us about this matter. Well, there is more to Chris than just his pen. Uh, let me give you a little bit of personal information about Chris uh, and his family before he comes and opens God's word with us. Chris has been married to his wife, Paula, for the last 28 years. They have four children, uh, Nicholas, who is 21, uh, Karen, who is 20. Uh, he told me last night they're both planning to get married in December. He did qualify it and said not to each other. So I'm glad his sense of humor is just about as twisted as mine. Uh, we have good fellowship already. Uh, he also uh, has another child named uh, Kristen. Christian with a K, who's 13, and Ethan, who is 11. Uh, he has a degree from Oklahoma State. I'm glad we're not playing against them today, as the Lord would have it, or we wouldn't want you here. Um, <laughs> he also has a degree from uh, Reformed Theological Seminary um, in Jackson, the Jackson branch. 
Um, he's been a pastor uh, for a number of years uh, in the past. He was a pastor for eight years in New Mexico. Uh, he also, uh, for those of you who know and appreciate Steve Lawson, who's been here before, uh, before seminary, he actually was uh, a member of the, ch- uh, the Bible Church of Little Rock in Arkansas, where Steve used to be and where my friend Lance Quinn is now. So there is some, some connection there. Since 97, he's worked for Dell. Don't hold that against him either. Uh, I do have a Dell. So I hope that, hope that works for you. Um, for the last nine years, he's been serving at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas, um, where he is actively involved there along with the rest of his family. When are you planning to go out of the country? As soon as I can. As soon as he can. Lord willing, this summer, you're trying to... to uh, next summer would be great. Okay, in the summer. Uh, and they are heading to Slovakia uh, to be missionaries. And so I've mentioned that to you all before, those of you who are members of this church, and ask you to pray for him. Uh, Because of that, because of all kinds of other things, it was hard to to convince Chris that it was God's will for his life to come. And uh, we told him that God has a great plan for his life, and so do we, um, and did some sanctified arm twisting, as I like to call it. And he has agreed to come, and we are so thankful, and I will stop my shenanigans and uh, say in all sincerity, we are thrilled that you are here. We're glad that you are here. Uh, We want you to talk to us about sin uh, on this Saturday morning. And so please do that. And uh, let's welcome Chris Lundgaard. Good morning. I thank you for twisting my arm and getting me here just for the music. I think we should. Keep singing, not pray and go home. I think we should just keep singing. That was very beautiful. And thank you for coming out here on a Saturday morning. Uh, I know you can probably think of other things to do on Saturday morning than uh, talk about sin, and I hope that we'll talk about something other than just sin today. Um, But first, I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1. Before we start talking about sin... I want to talk about what's been on my mind the last few months, and that was, why am I going to Omaha? I was trying to figure out, why in the world am I going to Omaha? And we just started studying Romans on Sunday evenings in our, in our church, and uh, a verse or two here in Paul's introduction to the church at Rome, his letter to the church at Rome, struck me for some reason as, as uh, kind of explaining why I'm here. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then Paul catches himself and he realizes, well, this isn't just a one way thing. He says that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And that uh, I've just been praying about that in the last uh, week or so, thinking about coming here and realizing this isn't just about. Uh, a book that I wrote or or about whatever I have to say today. It's about the mutual encouragement that we have. And, and Pat was talking about that last night is the reason he has these conferences is so he can get the other pastors to come here and he can have that collegial fellowship with them. And he enjoys that. And that's why we're here to encourage each other. Um, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, having never been to Rome himself, and I've never been to Omaha, so... That kind of related to, uh, there was a little relationship there. But I have been to Nebraska once. I came to a little town, I think it's southwest of here, about an hour or so, uh, some time ago. 
And I remember arriving on a Friday and, and I was with a, a group of people and we and we walked out in, into this uh, field and we were surrounded by gray concrete and the sky was overcast and it was gray and it was on, on an October uh, afternoon like, uh, like today. Very gray and it was kind of quiet and uh, we did a few things. And then the next day we came to that that same area and we walked out and that gray concrete had been transformed into just bright red surrounding us. Uh, and, and it wasn't quiet anymore. It was very, very noisy. Did you change the slide? Um, I wonder if anyone here, I think Gordon, where's Gordon? Do you recognize these people? That's right. That's right. I don't recognize them. 1978, Oklahoma State, Nebraska. So I was there, and I've got to tell you, I made two touchdown-saving tackles that day. I don't know what position you played. I hope you weren't the kick returner, because I was the, I was the punter. And you know, when a punter makes two tackles, that's not good. <laughs> Now, we had a lousy team that year. We won three games. It was the year the coach was fired after that year and all that sort of thing. We were on probation and all that mess. And, um, but we were within eight points at the end of the game against Nebraska, who actually had a good football team at that time. And <laughs> do you still have a team here in Nebraska? Um, and we were down by only eight points. And we had a fourth down inside Nebraska's 10-yard line, our last play of the game, it was in the last minute of the game, had a guy wide open in the end zone, and the quarterback, of course, threw it over his head. So, I'm glad we didn't win, because that would have been horrible. You, would have, you wouldn't have liked me very much. Would, would anyone understand if I, uh, the illusion if I said something like, back in 78, I could kick a pigskin a quarter mile? You understand that? Okay. All right. Well, I want to begin with uh, a little self-disclosure here. And uh, you can go to the next slide. That one's not very interesting. I want to talk about um, something about me that you probably don't need to know, and that is that I'm terrible at video games. I am probably the worst, world's worst video game player. Uh, and I don't enjoy it very much. I don't play very often because I'm so bad. Now, I have two sons. Christian and Ethan, who are 13 and 11, and they love to play games like Madden football and FIFA World Cup soccer. And they like to play those fantasy games like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and one time I sat down with them to play one of these fantasy games. I can't remember which one it was, maybe Star Wars or something. And the game started off with a story. It starts off with a little introduction and talks about we're on this planet and we're doing this and we got this mission and all this sort of stuff and and I was kind of bored because I wanted to go and you know attack some stormtroopers or whatever so I so I just said well let's skip that let's go to the next thing and let's let's get started well before I got very far into the game I uh, I was destroyed and I started again and I didn't get very far and the first creature that I came up against destroyed me again 
And, and this just went on and on, over and over, fighting the same battles over and over. Very frustrating. And I realized that skipping the story was actually a mortal error. Because the story gives the mission. It gives the objective. It gives the context. It, it gives you uh, that goal that you're going after in the game. And, and when you have some understanding of that, you can actually make progress in the game. Um, without knowing that end, without a sense of something that you're moving toward, you often fight the same battles over and over and over. And that's okay when you're talking about video games because they're pretty pointless anyway. But when you start talking about the Christian life and you start talking about the struggle against sin, if that's the description of the way things are going for you, then that's not a very good thing. And I have to admit that in much of my life, that would be a description of how my life has been as I've struggled over and over many times facing the same temptations and even for decades, really struggling against those. And then um, at, at a point about 10 years ago, I actually read some of the Puritan John Owen, some of his writings about sin, about temptation, about the flesh, uh, what he calls indwelling sin in the believers. And that gave me some help and started me thinking a lot more about about some biblical ways to approach this struggle. And, and I had uh, a sense of, of progress. And, and you're probably here today, at least I hope you're here today, because you want to make more progress in that. Because, like Eric said, we hate sin. We really don't like this. Well, let's talk, first of all, about, uh, next slide, about how we're going to do this. In the first session here, I want to talk about um, basically... What is the purpose of mortification in the Christian life? And what I mean by mortification is that uh, putting to death of sin, the purpose of mortification, that objective, that end, and then the place of mortification in the Christian life. Um, and this is roughly analogous. If you have read the book or if you, if you end up looking at the book, The Enemy Within, you'll see that there's four sections. The first section is about the power of the flesh uh, simply in what it is. And we'll touch on that just a little bit in the first in the first session or part of the first session. And then the second two sections of the book are the power of the flesh in in uh, how it works and what it does, what it accomplishes. And that'll roughly correspond to our second session when we talk about the uh, flesh's modus operandi, how it works. And then in the third session, we'll roughly correspond to the last section of the book, which is called Nailing the Lid on Sin's Coffin, some uh, weapons against the flesh. And I'm going to focus on one that's not in the book or not emphasized in the book at all, one that's been more meaningful to me in the last couple of years. All right, that's enough about what's going to happen. Let's get started. And I think the very best place to start is at the end. So, you, some of you might have been to Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anybody ever been involved with that or read the book or seen the movie? <laughs> well, I think the second one of his uh, habits is called Begin with the End in Mind. And it's a very, it's an excellent, excellent habit to get into. 
thinking about the end, thinking about the purpose for which you're doing things. But when Stephen Covey wrote this, I don't recall that he gave credit to the one who actually came up with this idea. Um, because, in fact, this comes from God himself. If you look at this passage that's uh, up on the screen here from Isaiah 46. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east. Speaking of Cyrus, who would come 150 years later or so. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. The doctrines of God's predestination and his foreordination exemplify and summarize that this idea that when God created the universe before anything else existed, he had in mind, he imagined, if you will, everything that he would bring about in his creation, everything that he intended to accomplish in the end. And the doctrine of providence teaches us that as we go through history, as, this, as his story is played out in history, he continues to work with the end in mind, and he works all of these things toward his purposes, bringing that end to pass. When we understand his sovereignty and wisdom in his providence, we see that nothing, he does nothing that is arbitrary or capricious, or even opportunistic. But everything that happens, down to the minutest detail, serves his purpose, his end, the end for which he created all things. So he not only begins with the end in mind, like Stephen Covey says we should do, but he works with the end in mind. So that whether you're planning a vacation, or you're preparing a sermon, writing an essay for school, building a house, uh, whatever you're doing, if you begin with the end in mind, you're not only following the advice of some circuit speaker, you're actually imitating the God who created you. And as we think about our struggle with the flesh, we will be immeasurably more effective if we begin with the end in mind. Next slide. Well, we have to begin with the right end because... Although beginning with the end in mind will make us more effective, it's crucial to begin with the right end. If we start off going in the wrong direction, and if we continue to think about the wrong direction, we're going to get messed up. If you enter into a battle and you try to accomplish, or you try to accomplish anything with the wrong, with a misguided mission, then you're going to end in failure. And one of the easiest ways to begin with the wrong end in mind one of the most common mistakes that we make is to make some means into the end. I want to illustrate this by asking you to think about a, um, a group of people who, who um, take, uh, it, their hearts become fixed on a social cause, caring for the poor perhaps. And somehow they develop a kind of a welfare program, if you will, some sort of a, a program that helps to enable people who are or are struggling to get back on their feet. Well, let's imagine that this is very, very successful for a time. And then after a while, though, there are some changes in the culture, some changes in the society, in the, in the political system, whatever it is, that, so that the effectiveness of this program deteriorates greatly. And it becomes clear to anyone looking from the outside 
that it should be abandoned. Yet the people who began it have now made the program itself their end. It becomes a litmus test for politicians that they vote for and so on. And, and what has happened, though, uh, is, is that they have made this means an end in itself. And as I've thought about our struggle with mortification and with putting the flesh to death, it's, it's become clearer and clearer to me that I can't be effective unless I have the right end in mind. And when we make mortification an end in itself, there is a danger that we will well, there's a danger that, we'll be, that we will make it an end in itself because we become enamored in it. We do things like have whole conferences about the struggle against the flesh. And we, and we all want to be thought of as people who are those upper echelon Christians who are self-disciplined and who know how to handle ourselves against sin. And it, the, the techniques of mortification then become very important to us. Um, there's a group of, of, of uh, let's see, now, next slide. When we make mortification an end in itself, we end up trying to put the flesh to death by the power of the flesh, and that won't work. It's not any more effective than trying to put out a fire by pouring gasoline on it. And I want to refer to this passage in Colossians 2 where, and we'll return to this later, where Paul is talking about, I think, this whole idea of of getting trapped in making mortification itself an end. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, self-denial, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Since this is such a danger, and we'll talk about this passage in more detail later, but since this is such a danger, um, we need to make sure that we have the right end in mind as we get started. And I have a theory. I have a theory that in an ideal sense, everything that we do, whether it's mortification or anything else, should serve an ultimate end. The end for which we were created. The chief end, if you will. Our reason for existence. Why God made us. Uh, Next slide, please. And... Everything that we do should serve that chief end. Well, what is that chief end? And I'm not going to refer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism here. I'm going to look at some scriptures here that I think tell us what that end is toward which we should work. Look at 1 John chapter 3, the first couple of verses. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. All right, these verses speak about our glorification in eternity, in the end. 
And they say that in the end, we shall be like him. We shall be like God. We shall be like Christ. When we are fully matured in some remarkable way that we cannot understand now, uh, we will be like him. Well, I think this is the end for which we should strive, being like Christ. And Eric was even making references to this uh, as we began this morning. But go to the next slide. I want to continue to show, uh, to convince you that this is the end for which we were created. So in the end, we're going to be like Christ. Well, in the beginning, God made us. In the beginning of beginnings, he said, let us make man in our image. And he began with the end in mind. He designed us, made us to be like himself. And as you continue to think of how he works in the world after the fall into sin, after that image was distorted and twisted as uh, as indwelling sin entered into into humanity, God made his plan to to do what? To restore that image, to recreate us. In Ephesians four, he says to Put on, as he's talking about mortification, by the way, he says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So in the end, we're going to be like Christ, like God. In the beginning, we were created to be like him. And the whole purpose of the redemption that Christ provides is that we'll be recreated in the image of God. So I ask you, what is the end of all ends? To be like Christ, to be like God. And if you still don't believe me, next slide. Paul gives it away. He says in Romans 8, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? Those whom he uh, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, mortification if it is going to serve, the end of all ends must serve this, that it it increasingly shapes us into the image of Christ. All right. I think you probably already believed that before I came here. But how do you know when you're approaching the end? How do you know when you're getting close? Well, obviously, when you become like Christ. Well, what is Christ like? What does it mean to be like him? Does it mean you drive money changers from the temple? Does it mean you, uh, that you go around healing people and that sort of thing? I don't think that's exactly what the Bible has in mind when it talks about becoming like Christ. Uh, but um, there is a fundamental aspect of his life but that we are supposed to measure ourselves against. And if you go to the next slide... Um, Jesus talks about it on the night in which he was betrayed. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So mortification serves the purpose of growing not just like Christ, but specifically like Christ in love. Now, what that looks like, uh, that word is packed with all kinds of connotations what that looks like is, is really the, the study of your whole life is to know what love looks like by reflecting on Christ himself. But that's our purpose. That's why we're here. Now, um, let's move beyond the, the overall purpose of mortification. Let's talk about the place of mortification in the Christian life. The next slide. Mortification 
um, is only necessary in the Christian life if, in fact, you want to have spiritual life. I have the impression, and I hope I'm wrong, I have the impression that some people think that mortification is like elective surgery, as if the doctor said to you something like, well, um, we could do this, and if you don't have it, you might experience some discomfort in life, and things might be a little difficult now and then. And someone could take that advice and say that you could could weigh uh, the difficulty of mortification, because it's not easy, against uh, what you think the benefits might be, and you might just say, well... I, I think the payoff is too small. I think I'll, I'll just go ahead and, and I'm, I'm just going to declare myself a carnal Christian and I'm going to hurry on my eat, drink, and be merry way. But Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. This is not elective surgery. No one who hopes to live in God can decline mortification. Next slide. The nature of the flesh itself in us demands constant mortification. So let's go back to where John Owen makes his start as he talks about indwelling sin. He looks in, in Romans chapter 7 uh, to to extract some very important points about the nature of the flesh. And since John Owen started there, and since I was following him as closely as I could in my book, that's where I started. As as we read this passage from Romans 7, of course, we have to acknowledge that not everyone agrees with the interpretation that Paul here is describing the life of a Christian in his struggle against sin and the frustration that he has. But... Uh, And and I'm not going to take the time to try to convince you other than just simply to say that I don't believe that someone who is not a Christian could even experience this kind of struggle, this kind of warfare that, that is waged within you when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and the flesh resists that and and the flesh and the spirit war against each other. I just, it just boggles my mind to think of any other kind of creature that could experience this but a, but a Christian. Um, but you can look at commentaries and you can be persuaded uh, by them. Look at J.I. Packer, for example, and what he says. In fact, as I, as I think about this struggle, the, the, most, the most effective illustration to me in, in thinking about this struggle is to think of the coming of Christ into the world. He came the first time to establish his kingdom. And he did indeed bring his kingdom into the world. And he is, in fact, now ruling over the world as the Lord of all the earth. Now, you look around you, though, and you look at some of the things that are happening and you say, well, that doesn't really look like Christ is ruling. It doesn't look like Christ is reigning with some of the things that are happening in in this world. That's because there continues, even though his kingdom has been inaugurated, there continues this struggle across the whole planet. But the church and his kingdom continues to advance to fill the earth, right, like that leaven uh, filling the whole dough, right, and that tree growing and its branches spreading. 
And then when he returns at his second coming, he will consummate his kingdom and every last enemy will be destroyed. Well, I think of the Christian life in much the same way. And when you are born again, uh, born of the spirit, in fact, Christ comes into you by his spirit. You are born of the spirit. Yet that is the first coming and the battle begins. The struggle begins and it continues until the end of your life. And you can think of your glorification with Christ as that second coming of Christ to you, the consummation of his work in you. Well, with that perspective in mind, let's look at this passage from Romans chapter 7 and start talking about the nature of the flesh. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another, uh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In this passage, Paul uses several suggestive phrases to, and terms to describe this enemy. He calls it just plain old sin. He calls it sin that dwells within me. He calls it my flesh. He calls it the law of sin and the body of death and the law of sin and death. Now, in order to expound the power of, of the flesh, by looking at its very nature in the life of the believer, Owen kind of took his starting place with verse 21. And go to the next slide. You'll find, if you look in the book, you'll see my summary of those four points. And we're kind of going to follow through that now. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So the first point is that sin dwelling in us, the flesh, is a law. That's what Paul calls it, a law. It's the same thing that Paul calls sin that dwells within me in verse 20 and the law of sin that dwells in my members in verse 23. And Paul here is using law as a metaphor, I believe. He had been talking earlier in the chapter about God's law. And I think with a lot of irony on his pen, he begins to talk about sin as a kind of law. And I think he's doing that in order to emphasize the kind of power and constraint and compulsion and influence that the law of sin, that sin, that the flesh exerts on us. 
from within. So let's unpack for a minute the metaphor of law. Think of, think of law, first of all, as a moral rule that directs and commands us to do what it requires. For example, pay your taxes. Or it commands and directs us not to do what it forbids. Don't trespass. On the positive side, the law entices us to obey with rewards for obedience. Uh, supposedly, if you pay your taxes, you will have police to protect you, nice roads to drive on, good schools to send your kids to. On the negative side, if you trespass, you must pay a fine of $500. So there are these promises of reward for obedience to a law, and then there are threats of punishment for disobeying the law. There's a good example of this, or God demonstrates this, in giving his law in Deuteronomy. You might remember the scene with uh, Mount Gerizim and, and Mount Ebal where ha- half of the Israelites were to stand on, on, on one side of the valley on the side of Mount Gerizim and the other on Mount Ebal. And they had this, uh, this little antiphonal thing going where uh, w- half of them were to pronounce the blessings for obedience to God's law. And the other half were to pronounce the curses for disobedience. Well, this is kind of the way law works, right? If you obey it, these good things happen. And if you disobey, these bad things happen. Well, when you think of sin, it's kind of upside down. Obeying the law of sin is breaking the law of God. But sin offers rewards to us for obeying it. And it threatens uh, punishments, if you will, for disobeying. For example, the rewards are typically couched in the terms of pleasure. If you do this, it's really going to feel good or you're really going to have power or you're going to have something that you're going after. And if you disobey it, which is to obey God, man, your life is going to be really hard. It'd be a lot easier if you would just obey sin. You can also think of law not just as a moral law, but as uh, in the terms that we use of laws of nature. Like we talk about gravity as a law that bends things in its direction. It conforms us perfectly to its commands, if you will. Gravity is not a law or an, as in the sense of an idea or an outward precept that merely motivates us, but it is actually a physical force that bends objects into its will. In this sense, every urge and inclination in us is a kind of a law. Hunger is a law. Fear is a law. Sexual drive is a law. Thirst is a law. That compels us to do things. Each impels us to fulfill its demands. And each brings a force to bear on us. To bow us into submission to it. And when God writes his law on our hearts. There's a sense in which there is a force there. As he brings us into submission. Our urges and inclinations at the very core of our being, become reshaped by the Spirit living in us. I think that's what you, what you see in this struggle in Paul. Because when he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, he's talking about that core of what he really is. He really is born of God. And, and at, the, at the very center of who he is, he, um, he wants to obey God. 
The flesh works like a law in both of these senses. It entices and it motivates with promises of reward if we obey it. It threatens with pain if we refuse to listen to it. It even bullies us by a kind of force that seems at times overwhelming. So much so that it seems at times that it's even unnatural to disobey the law of sin within us. Paul calls it a law to suggest its power even in the lives of believers and to make it clear that it constantly works to press us into its evil mold, to bring us into subjection. The second, next slide, second, if we, uh, we also find that this law is inside us. Back in March, I was speaking at a little education summit at our church, and I'd been talking for about half an hour or so, and then something strange started happening to me. Uh, a, head, a headache, a, uh, what's called a vascular headache, one of those throbbing kind of things, with the power and pain that I had never experienced in my life, began to develop right in the center of my head, and it increased, so it felt like my head was going to explode. Well, I had to stop talking for a little bit and, uh, and go lie down, which was a little bit disruptive. Hope it doesn't happen today. And um, uh, then I came back and it was still hurting, but I, but I kind of wrapped things up and then I went to the hospital. Well, I didn't go to the hospital. I went to a clinic and there was a long wait. And after waiting there for about an hour and the pain was kind of subsiding, I, I decided, well, I think I'll just go home. It's getting to be more like a normal headache. I'll go take some ibuprofen and we'll... And we'll deal with this Monday when I go to see my doctor. We'll find out what's going on. Well, the next night, I also was supposed to stand up and, and talk at church on Sunday night. And as soon as I stood up, and within just a few seconds, this thing hit me so hard, I had to stop immediately, and I had to go. And I ended up on the floor in the lobby uh, in a really embarrassing position, just weeping because there was so much pain. Uh, and I was holding my head to try to keep it from exploding, and they had to call uh, an ambulance. They took me to the emergency room, and I had a CAT scan, and, I, and it was several hours before these really strong narcotics actually made it subside to where I didn't want to die. And then over the next few days, I had an MRI, and I had an MRA, and I had a spinal tap. Anybody ever had a spinal tap? It was actually very pleasant. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, I'm serious. It was, it was really nice. Um, but as they were doing these things, I knew what was going on. They were looking for something like a tumor or an aneurysm, something really evil inside of me. And I, and I, and I had this overwhelming fear about, you know, there might be something inside me that's trying to destroy me and ruin me and kill me. And there's nothing I can do about it. And it's inside me. And some of you, maybe some of you have had cancer or, you know, someone, someone close to you has had cancer. And that that kind of shock that comes over you when you realize there's something inside you that's trying to destroy you. And it's being successful. Well, I think that's the problem here and the kind of shock that that Paul points out. He found this law inside him. Um, Yeah, it's a monster within us that's trying to destroy us. Well, third, go to the next slide. Third, we find this law in us not when we're 
at our worst, but we find it when we're at our best. We don't find it when we're backsliding. We don't find it uh, 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 struggling when we're, when we're enjoying sin. We find it when we're really at that point when we most want to obey God. When we, because Paul says, when I want to do right, evil is right there with me. When I want to obey God, that's when the struggle becomes the most. And I really like John Owen's illustration about swimming upstream, as if the stream, the current of the river, were the force of the flesh. And those who give themselves over to the flesh, maybe they're sitting in an inner tube floating down the stream, you don't feel the force of the current. But if you try to swim upstream against that, you will feel it. And so when, you're, when you want to obey God, when you want most to please him, that's when you feel the force of the flesh against you. Because Paul was in Christ, the rightful and true ruler of his heart was Christ. And Paul was driven by the Spirit of God to obey his Lord. Sin was not his master, but sin was resisting his master in everything that he did. And at times, sin felt like the de facto ruler of his heart. And haven't you felt that way as well? But I'm here to tell you this morning, and this is the thing that, that I think um, has been very important to me, is to realize that this struggle itself brings comfort. This struggle itself brings comfort. It's evidence that you are born of the Spirit. Because without the work of the Spirit in us, there wouldn't even be this kind of a struggle. Not that unbelievers... Those who are not born of God don't struggle, but the struggle is different. It's different. Um, I want you to understand that I'm not saying that if you find yourself always surrendering to the flesh and giving in to sin constantly, that that's a good sign that you're born again. Uh, But that if you feel this struggle, this force against you, resisting your desires to please God, then that is a compelling evidence to me that the Spirit of Christ lives in you. And it's, it's counterintuitive, in a way, to think like that. And I believe that Satan, our accuser, uses that struggle to weaken our confidence and our faith in Christ and to make us doubt that we belong to God. But if you're someone who's hounded by these doubts, I hope that this will give you a different way to think about your struggle. Fourth, uh, the fourth of four things that uh, Owen extracts from this verse, uh, the law of sin is a law that never rests. Since grace rules the believer's heart, he wants to do right. He wants to please his God. He wants to be conformed to the image of Christ. But the law of sin opposes that desire and it opposes it constantly. It's in a constant tug of war against your overall desire to please God. And what we'll see later today is that the flesh brings some very specific strategies to bear against whatever kind of good you desire. The flesh isn't just some kind of general inclination to do bad, but it is particularly deceitful and it fights against the specific good things that you want to do with very specific strategies focused to overthrow you, designed to overthrow you. And it is constant. Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Does anyone have the NIV? 
No, NIVs. I think it says something like you cannot do what you want or you do not do what you want. Very strong statement. I think we can understand why Paul would say that if you want to have spiritual life, you have to put the flesh to death. There is nothing. You have to understand this. There is nothing that you can do that is pleasing to God without mortifying the flesh. In other words, if you have ever in your life, whether you thought about it or not, done anything pleasing to God, you did, to one degree or another, put the flesh to death, whether it was self-conscious or not. It is, it is completely inescapable because this struggle is constant and goes on your whole life. If ever you're going to please God, you're going to have to overcome the flesh. So I think what we're here today to do is to think more self-consciously about that, not just to stumble through the game like I do when I get into these video games and just kind of run into the first Balrog that I meet wipes me out. But we're here to think self-consciously about the fact that we're in this constant battle so that we can bring to bear against the flesh the specific strategies and the means and the weapons that God has given to us to defeat the flesh. So I think all we've done so far is just take a few steps toward having an advantage against the flesh. And we have a sense of that end for which we were created, that we would become like Christ and particularly in love. And we want to keep that in mind as we talk about the flesh today. Keep that in mind always in everything that you do to remember that however you're approaching the defeat of sin, that it's shaping you toward Christ-likeness in love. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that we're not like you in every way. And we want to be like you. We long to be like you. Help us to see the deceit of sin. Help us to see... Uh, Help us to have confidence in you that you have given us your spirit and you have given us many weapons to defeat the flesh and strengthen our desire and our resolve to be victorious against sin. In Christ we pray. Amen.